Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make him known. Well, good morning, City of Refuge. Uh, My name is Brandon Freeman, and I am the equipping pastor here at the church. Today, we are continuing our series we've entitled Ecclesia, uh, The Called Out Ones. And the idea behind this series is, you know, previous to this, we did a study of Jesus' farewell address, where he is giving them instructions about what life is going to look like and what they should be up to after his death, resurrection, and ascension. And so here at the beginning of Acts, we get to see that played out. How did that look in the early church? And so we're going to be taking an in-depth look of Acts 1 and 2 through this series. So last week, Elijah preached through the ascension of Jesus. And we saw Jesus leaving the disciples with the instructions to wait in Jerusalem until the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then we see him going up into heaven. And somewhat comically, the disciples are just kind of sitting there staring after him. And it takes the angels kind of getting their attention and saying, no, he's, he's actually gone, uh, but he's going to be back. And, and Elijah talked about how they are in this in-between now. They have been called into this season of waiting in, in two senses. One, they've been called to wait for the Holy Spirit. They're supposed to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. But they're also in the season of waiting for Jesus to return, one that we can relate to. We are similarly in that season of waiting where we sit in this in-between between when Jesus has come once and paid the penalty for sin and when he ultimately is going to come again to make all things new. So they are in this in-between. But there's an outstanding issue that hasn't been addressed yet. And that's Judas. So you remember Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus, the one who led the Pharisees and the Sadducees to the garden where Jesus could be arrested safely. And you remember that poignant scene where he betrays Jesus with a kiss. What happened to him? What does the church do about him? Well, the passage we're going to look at today is going to answer those two questions. What happened to them, and how did the church respond? Now, I'm going to preface this text. This is a little bit of a tricky one. It's pretty simple to understand what is happening, but what is harder to understand is what are we to make of it? And what of it is supposed to be normative for the way that we act and live as a church now? So I'm going to lean a little heavier on the teaching side today. And we might have to get into the weeds a little bit on a couple of places to really understand what's happening. But I hope you'll bear with me in that because I think there are some real riches in this somewhat strange passage. So let's read now. We're going to read Acts 1, and I'm going to read all of 12 through 26. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along there. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women 
and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Bersabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. All right. So what is this passage about? So, so fundamentally, we have the disciples being obedient to Jesus. They return to Jerusalem. They're waiting on the Holy Spirit. And we find out that there's about 120 people there. It's his 11 disciples, plus a number of the women who had followed Jesus, plus, I'm guessing, just a number of people who had been following Jesus and who likely he had appeared to after the resurrection. And they're praying together. And then Peter stands up and we find out about the fate of Judas. It talks about that he had acquired a field and then it talks about him falling headlong. We know a little bit of the details from Matthew 27. Uh, in Matthew 27, we find out that after Judas had betrayed Jesus, he actually went back to the high priest and he threw the money back to them and then went and hung himself. And the priests could not take the money and put it back in the treasury because it had basically been used for a bribe, for blood money, and so they purchased a field. And combining Matthew 27 with this passage, it's likely that the place where Judas hung himself and the field that they purchased was the same place. And here in Acts, we also get this very vivid picture of what happens to the body afterwards, which is weeds we are not going to go deep into, but Judas comes to a pretty grisly fate. Now, the disciples then work on appointing Judas's replacement through the rest of this passage and ultimately appoint Matthias. And if you're reading this passage, you're probably tracking with it. Like, there's a lot here that you wouldn't be surprised at, right? They're praying. They go look at the scriptures. They come up with some good, wise criteria for who this person should be. And then they cast lots? what we essentially would be for us like throwing a die to decide. 
like, what are we supposed to do with that? Like, it, to, to us, it comes across as so random. It's almost like they're looking around going, hey, we need an apostle. Someone get a D6, right? Like, we're just going to throw and we'll see what happens. So what do we do with this? Now, there, there are some who interpret this passage as a mistake. They believe that the disciples actually make a mistake here, that they, they should have waited for the Holy Spirit to come in Pentecost before appointing a leader, and that the, the fact that they had to cast lots to decide is evidence of the fact that they made a mistake. If that's the case, then we have to read this as a cautionary tale, right, of what happens if you try and move ahead without the Holy Spirit. But I actually don't think that's what's going on here. So there are cautionary tales in the book of Acts. There are places where there are clear stories that are warning people about certain courses of action. I think one of the, the, the most memorable ones is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Later on, Ananias and Sapphira are this couple, and they come and they lie to the church, and then God strikes them dead. That's a cautionary tale, right? The author makes it pretty clear that that's what's going on, that they're doing something wrong. I don't see those same hallmarks here. And actually, I think that there are some important parallels between what we see in terms of how the disciples make the decision here and then later on when they have to make a similar important decision at the Council of Jerusalem. There's some very close parallels between those two passages. And for those reasons, I don't think the disciples are making a mistake here. So then we have to figure out what we're going to do with this. And I think that this passage is actually really helpful for us in looking at how do we go about doing discernment, both individually and as a body. How do we go about figuring out what is the will of God and making decisions in accordance with it? So I want to look at this passage from that lens, from the lens of what, what does discernment look like as a community? What can we learn from this passage about how to do it? And I want to look at four elements in particular. I want to look at prayer. I want to look at scriptural wisdom, general wisdom, and lots? Question mark? We'll get there. All right, so let's start with prayer. So we see in verse 14... All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So here we see the disciples taking on what they had seen modeled in Jesus. There's a number of places in the Gospels where we see Jesus getting away to pray to the Father. And in fact, one of the places you see him do that is right before he chooses his disciples. And in all of the Gospels, there's this time where he gets away and he is in a, a desolate place praying before he goes and he chooses the men that are going to be his closest followers. So I think it's interesting that you kind of see that parallel happening here. Now, there's nothing in the text that gives us a clear window into what they're praying for. We don't know if they were praying about the situation with Judas or not. Maybe it was something that as they were praying, it's sort of the whole, the, God revealed to them, hey, we need to deal with this Judas thing. We don't really know. But what I think is significant about this is that they are putting themselves just in a disposition of prayer, as a pattern of prayer. Something that I know I have been guilty of is prayer being something that I engage with when I decide I have something that I need to discern. 
right? Like I've got a big decision. I recognize I need to do something. And that is when, boy, I get on my knees and I'm seeking after God's will and I'm wanting to discern what he wants for me, which is a good thing to do. But I think here there is more of a being in a position of regularly coming before the Lord, not so much with the things that I know that I need to discern, but also seeking to hear what are the things that God thinks I need to be discerned. So I think there is a call here that they are modeling something to us in terms of just being in a position, a disposition of prayer towards God and making that a regular pattern of what we do. Yes, we should seek God in prayer when we are seeking to discern, but also we should be in a place of prayer for when we need to be discerning and don't realize it. There's a lot more that could be said about prayer, but it's mostly outside this text. So I'm going to leave it at that for now, of just being in this disposition of prayer being an important part of how we do good discernment. Now... Later on, after Peter has explained what happens to Judas, he, he quotes the Psalms twice. And so I want to look at how does Peter use scriptural wisdom in their decision-making here. So Peter says in verse 20, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So Peter here quotes from two psalms. The, the first one, may his camp become desolate, comes from Psalm 69. The second one, let another take his office, comes from Psalm 109. Now, if you go back into Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, you might be a little confused because there's nothing there that would tend to indicate that this is somehow predictive of Judas. What you will see instead is two psalms that are actually pretty similar in what they're doing. Both Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, they're Psalms of David. And they're Psalms where David is, is grieving and lamenting to God about the pain and the suffering that he's experiencing because of his enemies. And in the midst of those Psalms, there are sections where he is basically praying for, for justice, for judgment to come on his enemies. And the sections that are quoted here in Acts come from those sections out of Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. So what I think is happening here is not that Peter was looking back at those passages in a predictive way. Instead, I believe he was looking for at those passages in a precedent way. I think he saw a resonance, a similarity between what happened to Judas and what David prays for in these psalms, right? Judas seems to have fallen under the kind of judgment that is prayed about in Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. You also have this resonance because, right, in Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, you have King David praying about the fate of his enemies. Later on, you have the greater fulfillment, the greater king in the line of David, Jesus, and his enemy, in the form of Judas. So I don't think this is biblical prediction as much as it is biblical precedent. They're looking at this like in this situation, what's appropriate? What should we do? And what they see is, let another take his office that is appropriate that someone fill that spot. 
So there's that aspect of the biblical pattern that they're looking at here. But I think there's a, something else going on that's a little bit behind the text. And that has to do with the number 12. So when Jesus appoints the disciples, he appoints 12 of them, right? And that's not an accident. If 12 is an important number in the Old Testament, there's 12 tribes of Israel. So why would Jesus choose 12? Well, one of the things that the Messiah was supposed to be doing was he was supposed to be restoring true Israel. So in appointing 12 disciples representing the 12 tribes, there was this very visual symbol of what Jesus was up to, the fact that he was getting ready to restore Israel. In fact, that's exactly what the disciples ask about in verse 6 of Acts 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still looking for it. Right? They're looking for this restoration, and there's this new Israel being put in place through the work of Jesus. And so for them, moving from 11 and making sure that there were 12 disciples would have been something that was very important. Now, for us today, that just seems like some kind of silly symbolic thing. I don't think it would have seemed silly or just symbolic to them. Because their understanding is... Right, that this represents that Jesus is restoring all the tribes. He's going to restore all of Israel and all of who the true Israel is. And if you only have 11, that means a tribe is being left behind. That means Jesus' restoration will not be complete. And so I think there's that going on here, that they are being governed both by these passages in the Psalms that seem to indicate what is the pattern to follow, and then also what is biblically appropriate in terms of what was the work of Jesus and what did they as the 12 followers represent? I think this is informative for us in terms of using biblical wisdom in our decision-making. Because there's a lot of times when we are making decisions where you can't just go find chapter, verse, okay, now I know exactly what to do, right? I mean, if you're considering grabbing a stereo and running out of Walmart, I can find you a chapter and verse that will tell you that's a bad idea, right? Like, we can know, yeah, probably not. But what about what college you should attend? What about who you should marry? What about whether to take this job or that job? Right? These are all decisions that require a high level of biblical wisdom to make, but you do not have, can't go in and just go chapter verse, okay, now I know exactly what I'm going to do. Right? So I think there is a way that they're using scripture here that's really informative to us, that it's not just about being able to find chapter and verse, but it's also having spent enough time in God's word that we understand the pattern. We understand who God is. We understand who we are in light of who God is and what he has done and what he's trying to do and what our role is in the world. And all of that comes out of a general biblical wisdom. And I think you see that playing out here in the ways that they discern what to do in this situation. All right, so we've got those two. We've got the biblical wisdom and the role of prayer. But I also think there is a, a general wisdom that they demonstrate here. And uh, the distinction I'm drawing here is between stuff that you sort of do by exegeting the text, and I think there's also a general wisdom of understanding your time and your place and what you're doing that is also biblically informed but is more about a wisdom of what is going on today. Right? They understand 
the times that they're in. We talked earlier about the fact that they had been told that they were in the season of waiting. They were in the season between where Jesus had come once and when he was coming again, and in between he had given them a mission, a mission to be witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Like they understand that this is what their role is, this is what God has called them to, and this is the times that they're in. And because of that, it informs who they're looking to serve in this role. You see this in verse 21. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. So they're understanding here something about the role in this time that needs to be filled. Because the apostles, the early apostles, yes, they were the leaders of the church. That was an important aspect of what they did. But there was something even more important that they had to do, which is they had to be the authentic witnesses, right? They had to have been there from the beginning. They had to see, they had to have been sitting at Jesus' feet as he taught. They needed to have witnessed the miracles. They needed to have known and seen the crucifixion. And most importantly, they need to have been the ones that witnessed that he had risen from the grave because one of their primary roles is going to be to go out and tell that story. And they are going to be the ones that are going to be that, that authenticator of what truly was the teaching of Jesus and what was not the teaching of Jesus. And they knew that this was critical to this role. And so they established these criteria that whoever this person is, they need to have been there from the beginning. They need to have seen it all. They need to be able to witness and testify to it all. So there was a, a general wisdom that they used in terms of establishing the criteria that, yes, was based on Scripture, based on their knowledge of Jesus, but also, also about knowing their times and their place and their role. Okay. So we've got Scripture. We've got prayer. We've got wisdom. Certainly we have a result at that point, right? Well... They've identified the best two candidates. They've narrowed it down to two people. And there's the problem. There's two. There's only one office. So what do they do? They cast lots. Now, I want to get to the means of that here in a second. But let's talk about the ends. What were they trying to accomplish by casting lots. So they say this in verse 24, and they prayed and said, you Lord who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So here's the issue. They have hit a place of uncertainty. They have hit a place where to discern between these two candidates, they will have to know what only God can know. In particular, they would have to know the hearts of these men. And there is so much here that they do not know. They, they, you cannot see the heart of another person. They do not know it. They cannot discern it. They cannot see all ends. They don't know how, if they choose this person, what is going to be the result of all that? If they choose that person, what is going to be the result? 
all of this is uncertainty. And so they're looking for a way to make a decision that expresses their trust in God in the midst of that uncertainty. The goal is not to be random. That's not why they cast lots. Actually, the goal is to express trust in God. And the fact that Barsabbas wasn't chosen doesn't mean he was somehow deficient. In fact, later on, he comes to be a bishop. But here, the goal is just expression of trust in God and the things that they cannot know in order to make a decision here. Right? They've, they've spent, they have done due diligence in discerning God's will, but they've hit a point of uncertainty that they cannot resolve. And so they trust God. I think this is really helpful and really important when it comes to spiritual discernment because I think one of the great temptations with any time we pursue discernment and spiritual discernment, either individually or corporately, it is very, very tempting to make our goal certainty. We want to know for sure. And some of that can flow out of good motives. Some of that truly is we have a deep desire to please God and we want to make sure that we're doing what he wants us to do. However, I think it can also flow from a desire to not have any kind of risk associated with our decision. To know for sure that it's going to turn out okay. And by extension, we then get to avoid having to trust God with the result. I think that is a great temptation of spiritual discernment is to pursue certainty as our goal. And I think that this is why this passage in some ways is so helpful is because we see that even after all of that, the disciples of Jesus are still facing uncertainty. All right, so why lot? Well, Lot's actually has a lot of history in the Old Testament. So, for instance, Exodus 28, the high priest used a system called the umum and the thermum, which, from what we can tell, behaved a lot like Lot's. When they were dividing up the land of Israel, part of that was decided through the casting of Lot's. When they were designating the order of of who would serve when in the Levitical priesthood, they used lots to decide that. Like there was a lot of Old Testament precedent for the using of lots in certain decisions. Proverbs 16.33 says this, it says, the die is cast in the lap, but the result is the Lord's. Right, they had a deep understanding of God's authority and sovereignty in all things. And so in the casting of lots, they're not intending to be random. Instead, they're actually pressing into their belief of the sovereignty of God. Even beyond that, there was precedent within Israel, but also a lot of the surrounding cultures, Greek, Roman, Egyptian, used lots to a certain extent in their decision-making, particularly when a decision came to some sort of point where it couldn't be made otherwise. So in using lots, they're actually doing something that would make this decision in a way that would be acceptable to the community. 
So by casting lots, they do two things. One, they express trust in God and in his sovereignty. And two, they make a decision in a way that will be accepted by the community. Now, I know we feel the distance with this passage here in terms of the difference of time and culture. And because of that, do I think that city of refuge should use lots in its decision-making? I'm going to go with no. But here's why. Because if we did that, if we just emulated what happens here, we would not be doing it out of as an expression of trust in God, nor would it be a way to reach a decision that would then be accepted by the community. It would not accomplish that end. But I also think it's important that we be not naive about the fact that just like the early church, we are going to hit these places in our corporate decision-making and discernment where we hit uncertainty where we as a body don't have a way to know beyond what we have been shown by God and still have to make a decision. So how would we do it today? So there may be lots of answers to that question, but I think the most likely way, we take a vote. Now, I'm not comparing taking a vote to casting lots or, or trying to make comparisons of, of randomness or anything like that. But think about it from this perspective. By taking a vote, we accomplish the same ends. One, we express trust in God, that God will work out the vote in the way that he sovereignly wills through the hearts and the minds of each individual. And we come to a conclusion that will then be accepted by the community because we live in a democratic culture, that that is sort of how decisions are made. And so in facing that uncertainty, we ultimately come to do the exact same thing that the early church did facing uncertainty just through a different means. But I think the big point here, more than anything else, because I have seen many Christians and many churches at times get tripped up by this, is that spiritual discernment does not have certainty as its goal. It has as its goal a wise decision that firmly trusts God with the result, knowing that we cannot see all ends. So I think that this passage provides a strong example to us of what discernment looks like, starting from a place of just being a place of submitting our decisions to God. Perhaps that is the first step, right? This is a huge starting place that our lives, our decisions, both individually and corporately, are not just ours, that we acknowledge God's authority. We acknowledge that we are seeking God's will and his decisions in our lives. And that he's given us these tools of prayer, of scripture, of wisdom and community to be able to pursue discernment, but the end goal of that is not certainty. And instead, we try to make wise decisions with a firm trust in God for the result, for the things that we cannot know, and for the results that we can't control. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is frightening when we do not know how things will turn out. 
Lord, I pray that, one, you would give us hearts and minds that truly do desire to know your will, who are willing to step into discernment willingly and not just grudgingly, God, that we would truly long to do what you would have us to do in the ways that you would have us do it. But Lord, please help us to avoid the pitfalls of, of seeking certainty, of actually trying to seek a place where we don't have to trust you. Lord, help us to find ways to make wise decisions that still affirm our trust in you for the things we cannot know and the results that we cannot control. I thank you, God, that you are sovereign, that you are good, and that ultimately all things are in your hand. That gives us great hope and comfort in the midst of sometimes difficult and uncertain decision-making. All these things I pray in your precious and holy name. Amen.